as said, my name is Tom. It's my joy to not just read one, but three readings today. Um, So we're starting in Deuteronomy chapter 18. So if you have your Bible, flick to there, and we'll make our way all the way to towards the back in Hebrews. All right, so Deuteronomy 18, starting verse 9. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. Now flicking over about 30 pages into Joshua. So Joshua 11, 15. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua. And Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua took his entire land, the hill country or the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah, and the mountains of Israel with their foothills. From Mount Halak, which rises towards Sir, and Balgad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and put them to death. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time except for the Hivites, living in Gibeon. Not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites, who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who had hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel, so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses." At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions, then the land had rest from war. And now we're going to Hebrews, a whole thousand pages later. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains, then, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God rests also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. 
It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And that is the word of the Lord. Do keep the conversation going, everybody. There is some uh, coffee. Jimmy's making coffee this morning. Do grab one and keep chatting after our time together. Um, Let me pray as we kick around a really interesting, hard topic. Uh, Father God, uh, there is a judgment coming soon. Would you open our eyes, show us our sin, our need for your grace. Help us to walk this life in awe of your kindness that Jesus lived, died, rose so we can have life and hope with you now and forever and that you will make all things right. May that perspective frame our existence in your name. May you be given the glory. Amen. Uh, I love Jesus but hate the God of the Old Testament. He's just so violent. Have you heard it before? Maybe you've thought it before. Maybe you think that right now. And in the Bible reading, it was uncomfortable because of what we read in Deuteronomy and Joshua. And I get it because I know, I know why you think that. It, it, it is uncomfortable reading the Bible when you get to Joshua and Judges. And you hear of God's people that mounting a military campaign at God's command, by the way, to take over some land... And scholars and theologians who think through this, who do lots of great thinking in this space, they never stop uh, finding it unsettling and difficult at times. It is hard. Let me also say this, that, that human violence is a tragic aspect of human life and not part of God's intention for us. If you, and men in particular, I say this, are engaged in threats or violence or bullying or coercion. It is some of the most ungodly behavior. And it is never acceptable. And I pray that you would repent with tears and turn to the God of mercy and seek professional help. And if you need support in this, we're so glad you're here. Um, We want to be a safe community to walk with you through all of life. And there are great numbers on the screen are websites that we'd encourage you to go to as well if that's helpful for you. So while it's a tricky topic, there is lots that we can say about it that's actually helpful. And I want to do it today because it's a helpful time because it follows on what we've been looking at, as Jeff helpfully alluded to at the start, from the last few weeks. And so to frame this whole issue of land... I want to paint you lots of pictures and lots of puzzle pieces to put it together, and there's more that can be said uh, than what I'm going to say today. But the first part we have to understand is that it follows on from the last point. The Bible is telling one unified story, building on themes and ideas as it goes along. And we began by looking at three promises, uh, beginning in Genesis 12 to 15. Three promises, uh, promises. Did you put an apostrophe there? Let's do that in case it's somewhere. No, okay, good. Thank you, English teachers. And I'm going to do 12 to 15 because it's mentioned twice, God says to Abraham. And there's, there's a good acronym to remember this. Some of you know this from many years ago. It starts with an L. 
an O and a B, lob. We have land, we have offspring, and we have blessing. Three promises, and we're going to look at land today, so I'll put an arrow there. There you go. We've been looking at these. It is, it is a, a life with God offered to all the nations through his people, so the offspring and the blessing part. Through God's people, all the nations will be blessed, being able to walk with him like it was in the garden. The one part of the promise we've not looked at yet is the land one, and we'll do that today. Now, land in the biblical story fits into these big promises of God to bless all the world through his people. God's people that have a place in time and space where other nations were to look over and see them, see their life with God, like it was in the Garden of Eden, walking with God under his loving rule and care, they're to see that, the image of life under God. So the land then is this gift of God to image life like it's meant to be. However, if God's people turn away from God, if God's people take the good gift of this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, as uh, Moses tells them, and turn it into a place of wickedness and evil, no longer caring for people, no longer worshipping God alone, then God will expel his people from the land because they have rejected him, just like he did in Eden. And he does that. Many years later, Babylon and Assyria come along to take away God's people from their space, far away into a new land. So, land fits in this big picture of God seeking to bless humanity through his people. Now, we finish in Genesis, and at the end of Genesis, there's a small nation growing, the promises are there, offspring's happening, but really they have no land. 400 years later, though, 400 years later, they stand on the edge of the borders of Canaan. And then you get the phrases like we heard in Joshua. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. He waged war with kings. God commanded them to wipe them out. And we hit this new, new uh, genre in the Bible. It's narrative with ancient Hebrew battle reports. And all these questions fly at you, don't they? Like, how do you reconcile these verses with the damage that people have used throughout history to justify cultures and Christians even taking over someone else's land? Isn't starting a war the opposite of blessing the nations? Why would God send his people to take a land that belongs to another nation? If Jesus has loved your enemies, why does God declare war on them in the Old Testament? And how do we reconcile this with the Ten Commands? They're good questions. And there's more of them. So, we'll try to answer them all today, if we can. So it fits into this big promise of God is the first thing. This big story and blessing to the nations is where land fits. The question we have when we start to think about it is, well, what sort of God is this then? What sort of God would ask this and command this? Well, we should never imagine, firstly, that God is different across the Bible. That's the first thing. Never imagine that God is, say, less loving in the Old Testament, more loving in the New, that sort of thing. A helpful way to understand God's character is a bit like this. We have a circle, and if I was to draw some lines going down... Let's assume that each of these lines represents God's love, okay? So God, his love. Now this is a diagram, it's faulty, you get the picture. Let's draw some horizontal lines, and let's say this is God's mercy. Now, in my picture, it should be that every time a love line, it always intersects with a mercy line. There's never a time when God is not loving and merciful together. Let's do 
diagonal ones this way and call this wisdom. Again, there's never a time when God's wisdom is not intersecting with his love or his mercy. It's all the same. Let's do some more, and you, I think you get where I'm going. I'm going to do more here, and if I've done it right, I'm going to have justice here. God's justice is never not a part of his love or mercy or wisdom, and you could put another attribute of God and, and fill the whole circle. God is not parts. We wouldn't say God's wisdom is like this and justice is like that. God is one unified being, always acting out of his complete being all the time. Even though we might only see a part of it highlighted. So in creation, we see God's wisdom and creativity on display in a bigger way than we might in other places, for example. And my point is that knowing the big story of the Bible, the big picture of who God is and his character, helps us when we read the Bible, to make sense of the tricky bits particularly. God is telling one story, and God's one character is united always. And that means when we come to Lamb, we keep that in, the, in, in our minds. Which means, as we do this puzzle, which we're going to do today, there are three pieces, I think, keeping that in mind, which helps us. And the first puzzle piece, I'll do it up here, and I want you to see that God's people are pretty sketchy. And if you read Deuteronomy 9 and 18, that comes clear. God's people are really sketchy. Two things, God's people aren't any different to the nations. God is clear that his people are not to think they are any better or more righteous than the nations they are going into. God has not chosen them for this task because they are strong or deserving. In Deuteronomy, it says, you are stiff-necked, meaning they're stubborn and prone to rebellion too. As they go into the land, they are to remember they are instruments of God, beneficiaries of his mercy and grace, and that is what makes the difference in their life. They are not to think they are more deserving. They are not to think they have a claim to superiority as a race or a people group at all. They aren't any different except for God's grace. The second thing in Deuteronomy 18 is it tells us why they have to actually fight and it's to destroy the cultic centers to protect God's holy people. Just to destroy the cultic religious centers to protect God's holy people. Now, those who want to be holy or with God need to be like God. That theme runs through the whole Bible. Be holy because I am holy. And this small bit of land is to be a holy space where God and his people live together. A land set apart from the other nations who are unholy so that they would not influence God's people away from God and his holiness. Now, in Judges 2, early in Judges 2, there are two things that happen if they don't uh, stamp out this. Two things if they don't uh, get rid of the religious practice of these nations. Firstly, God says they'll be like splinters. You ever had a splinter and try to keep working? If you're, it really hurts, but you can still function, right? It's just an encumbrance. It's annoying. It's frustrating. And so if they don't remove these idols and this influence from the land, they're going to live with splinters all the time, day by day, driving them and wearing them down to eventually they become like a trap. What's a trap? Well, it's like when you, your car tires go completely flat on the side of the road or something breaks. You, you are immobile. You cannot move. And God is saying, these other nations are like thorns and traps to you. Going, going into the land is primarily pushing back the evil forces, the spiritual powers that would trip up and ensnare God's people 
stopping them from showing and being a holy blessing to the nations. Now, Deuteronomy 18 then tells us what the nations did. And it's horrific. There is child sacrifice, there is witchcraft, cultic sexual rituals that are like slavery. These practices are dehumanizing and evil. They're the opposite of life under God. And God's people aren't to be like that. And what's more, these nations are ripe for judgment as well. And that's not being harsh. Think about it like this. When a nation gives way to such shameless evil that the land groans beneath it, crying out for justice for its crimes, it is a mercy to the world when the evil is gone. And isn't that the case as we look around our world in lots of different ways, big, little, small? We cry for evil and injustice to stop. That's the place God's people are going into. So puzzle piece one, God's people are not any better. Which leads to that puzzle piece two, let me find, oh, my puzzle piece, I'll do it like this. There we go, and we'll go up. Oh, no, that's right, yeah. Um, Genesis 15, justice. We all want justice too. Years ago at a conference, uh, I heard the story of a man, a Cambodian man, who became a Christian under the reign of Pol Pot, back in the 70s, I think. And he said, um, he realized in that horrible regime where he lived, he said, I realize God isn't only a God of love, but a God of justice. He said, if there is a God, he will do something about what I've seen. And I want that God to make a right judgment about me, which happened through the cross of Jesus as he judged evil. Rufus Barrow is an African-American theologian, and he says, if you're an oppressed ethnic minority... You cannot simply settle for a God who is love. You need a God who is holy love. And that means a God who will hold humankind accountable to evil. Two weeks ago, my kids were listening to a podcast um, about ethics, and it's a very good podcast, actually, and the secular thinkers were talking about the problem of stopping evil. How could we do that in the world? And they did this great you know, um, portrayal of a robot trying to stop evil. It's very kid-friendly. But the point they made was, we have to wipe out humans to stop evil. Because we're the problem. Now, in, in the Bible, there are moments, there are moments, which, which one great thinker called Meredith Klein, he says, it's, this in, it's called an intrusion ethic. Don't have to remember the name. But the point is, God, the judge of all, can determine to give justice now rather than waiting for the last day when we will stand before him to give an account. He would say this future judgment intrudes on the present, which is what happens in Genesis 15. God says to Abraham, I see the evil of these nations. I'm just going to wait for the right time in the future to judge them. Just hold on. I'm going to take care of it. It's just not now. The future, he'll do it, which happened in Joshua's day 400 years later. This promised future fulfillment aspect. God's future promise of judgment was brought forward into time and space. In the Joshua Judges Deuteronomy, God decides to bring forward a future judgment on those people early, which is why it's only ever a small part of the land they're to go into. It's why it's never commanded again, and it's why they stop. They don't just indiscriminately go anywhere. In fact, when God's people try to overstep God in this, it never goes well for them. And God says, you shouldn't do that. You see, if God searches and knows every heart, if God understands that the evil and suffering of a groaning world, 
If God has promised to bring the world to a point, and part of that is judging the evil that we see, what if God decided to bring that forward just for a moment so we would get a glimpse of what it's like? And in this part of the Bible, God does that. But remember too, here's the great news, God intrudes with a future blessing. God brings forward his presence by his spirit to live in believers today so we can walk with him while we await for a restored world. God gives his grace and kindness to us, softens our heart, he restrains sin, he creates joy and community. He gives us friendship and family in the church. These are the blessings of the life to come brought forward now into the present. Which means another reason land is important in the Bible is to show an overlap between heaven and earth anticipating a future restoration of all things under God and how it was supposed to be. If you imagine with my lovely Venn diagram that this is the evil in the world and the injustice, okay, and then over here you've got a holy God and his character and nature and his justice to be God, pure, holy, good, the evil of the world, sin. There you go, put that there. In the middle, there's this overlap and the land plays a part in it. I can't fit it, but you have land showing God's intent for humanity. You have the moment Jesus comes when he takes the sin and the judgment on himself so that we can now live with God. And one day, God will carry that to a point in which he restores and renews creation. But why can't God just put sanctions on them? Like the UN does? Why, why do something physical? Like, can't you just write a letter to them and say, please cease and desist and change your ways? Um, well, this is a third puzzle piece to look at. And this is where a Joshua reading comes in. Oh, have to go over that. Joshua 11. And it's all about strongholds. It's all about strongholds. In our Joshua reading, it says Joshua waged war against the kings for a long time. God is going after cities and rulers that represent the main Canaanite religious system. Strongholds. Think Edinburgh, not Adelaide. You know, the difference between the two. Civilians are caught up, sadly, but the majority leave before any battle actually begins. What's more, not everything's to be expelled from the land. God protects some. God's very explicit in saying don't harm them. Many times when God's people hear and follow God, they don't even lift up a finger to overthrow the nations in there. In Jericho, for example, they walk around the city and it comes crumbling down. In Second Chronicles, Jehoshaphat, another faithful king, uh, says, Lord, we need your help. And they go to, to see the nation that's going to overcapture them, capture them, and they're just already defeated. They didn't do anything. So it could be compared to what the Allies did during World War II. They're, going to, they're on a mission to end an evil regime, but it didn't mean they have to kill every German. So in the Joshua reading it says, did you notice the Hivites made a peace treaty? Earlier in Joshua, Rahab and her family know this is God's judgment and they make a peace treaty with them as well. Except, sadly, most didn't want to come under God's loving rule and care. But the offer was always there. See, the point is, if the, the people in the land don't pose a danger to, to the identity of God's people anymore, the main reason to kill them is gone. It's not about ethnicity. It's about being their own ethnicity as they were invited to follow God, to turn from evil and injustice to the true good life-giving God. 
So the offer was always there. So, God's people are pretty sketchy, just like everyone else. Justice is a big cry, and they're going after strongholds, not just every city and village they see along the way. So if we summarize all of this really quickly, God is the same God across the entire Bible. This part of the Bible shows God's character in a unique way. He is holy, merciful, and just, and will judge evil. The call to take the land is a reflection of God's purpose to establish a holy people different to other nations so they can model life as it was in the Garden of Eden to them and invite them to join worship of God. That goes back to the promise made to Abraham. And the destruction was to protect God's people from being ensnared by the nations around them. But so evil were these people groups that God intruded early with his judgment and they stubbornly refused his mercy. But of course, the Bible doesn't end with the book of Joshua. We had another reading, and I always run out of space, but it's Hebrews, wasn't it? Hebrews 4. Joshua 11 ends by saying the land had rest from war, but Hebrews comes along and says that wasn't complete rest. The rest in Joshua's day did not last very long because the land is only a shadow of the whole world being restored back to God, like in the Venn diagram. And that wouldn't be an offer until Christmas time. The ultimate goal of the land points to rest, the removal of idols that would trip up God's people, comes about by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Because that land they were going after could never offer what God intended. Until God himself fought the greatest battle against sin, Satan, and death, on the greatest battleground that there ever was, the hearts and minds of all people, with the greatest person who ever lived, Jesus Christ, his son. You see, when Jesus came at Christmas, he kicked into God's purpose a different gear. Do you know in the Gospels of Jesus, whenever violence is suggested from the disciples, Jesus rebukes them? There are three moments. Firstly, Peter picks up a sword and cuts off someone's ear. And Jesus stops him and heals the ear and says, put it down. James and John in Luke 9 want to call fire down from heaven. I like like to think, how do they know they can do that anyway? But they want to call fire from heaven because a city has rejected Jesus. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. And then Jesus welcomes in Matthew 15 a Canaanite woman, a descendant from that very land when everyone else has rejected her and he welcomes her. Jesus himself knows the evil and suffering of the hands of others. His body was disfigured beyond human appearance. He was violently killed upon a cross. The one person, fully God and man, didn't end our lives but his On the cross, God fought the spiritual powers in Jesus in a physical way to overthrow the strongholds of Satan, sin, death, and sin. The biblical authors then talk about the precious blood of Jesus and how he gives us rest from the war that goes on inside of us and spills over and out into our lives. The biblical authors then remind us the only military tools ever acceptable for a Christian is the Word of God the sword of the Spirit, as we confront our own evil, as we confront the injustice in this life with compassion, prayer, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the same way the land needed to be holy so God and his people can live together, Jesus makes us holy people so God can walk with us and in us through all of life. Because you see, there will be a judgment. And I I wonder what judgment will God make about you? 
If God's people go into a land and they're not any better, what makes you think you're any better? But in the kindness of God, Jesus was the good one, the perfect one, the righteous one, the one who offers you life with God. What will the verdict of God be about your life? As Hebrews 4.13 says, When you stand before God, exposed, giving an account for your life, hear this, the precious blood of Jesus will speak for you and declare you righteous and good. And that is the good news of Christmas and of every day and of Jesus Christ. Saved from the judgment, saved to a life with God. Do you trust this Jesus? But finally, I want to end with this. The, the rest was part of the goal of the land conquest, giving rest. And right now, as I look around and the week I've had with many of you, I know we're very sensitive to the fact that life is not restful. Your land, your workplace, your family are quite not places of rest at the moment. The stress, the drama, the, the injustice that we see in those places. Not global injustice, but just the injustice you feel in your life, kicking around in your little patch. It's heightened. Our boss and our colleagues aren't pulling their weight this week. And it's weighing up and I have to do everyone's job now to finish the year because so-and-so has already gone on holidays. Have you felt that injustice? Maybe not now. Maybe this week. Maybe you feel the injustice of your family because life is complex and no one understands my situation. The kids, the complexity of life I live and how it's been hard to make ends meet this year and yet not, my family doesn't actually get it. And we feel that injustice. The forgotten one. The one no one remembers. Everyone lumps it on me. I have no friends because everyone comes to me to fix their problems and no one takes time for me. I'm sure you felt that. The joy of Christmas confronts us with the injustice in our lives. So here's my encouragement and perspective as your pastor today. My prayer for you is that you would respond to those unjust moments as someone already declared righteous by Jesus. Joyful. Every morning as you go into the land around you, you would know that your own evil and impurities have been removed by the precious blood of Jesus. That he's already judged you and declared you right. That any injustice you face, you can bring to God, the one who will judge all things and do what is right. And that may happen now and pray that it would. But if not, may you know that it will happen that you can bring God's word to your heart and mind to navigate that, that the Spirit himself reminds you you're dearly loved and you don't have to be that way. It's okay. You can bring a different perspective because God knows your situation to your workload, your family, not of anger and frustration at the injustice, knowing there will be. And in the kindness and love of God, you can face that knowing your future is secure when we face injustice. Praise God. The precious blood of Jesus speaks louder than anything else. Let me pray. Our great God, you know our life, you know the evil and injustice, you see it, you're compassionate and kind, and you do something about that through Jesus. And that's the promise that our life can have the right verdict, but also the future hope that one day you will put things right. And until then, we long for the renewed creation. Give us patience call down our anger and frustration this week that we would know we're declared righteous by Jesus alone 
So help us to go into our world as followers of you with a different rhythm, showing the hope that Jesus brings every day. May you give him the glory. Amen.